Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season four of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all walks of life about masculinity, sex and relationships, and how that contributes to our self-worth. Masked man number 98 is the sex addict. He joined the 12-step program for Sex Addicts Anonymous after his partner seeked help with partners of sex addicts. After losing his best friend from a stint with sexual allegations from his ex and his behavior with porn and sexting ruining his last relationship, he shares his spiritual journey on finding compassion and forgiveness for himself. I think this is an incredible story to listen to as someone myself who also struggles with sex addiction where celibacy is the path I am on today. In this episode, we discuss how we might reapproach consequences to sexual misconducts, but more importantly, what redemption and reacceptance would look like. Because if there's no way to be accepted back into your community after a mistake has been made, then why bother trying to even be better? So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. I think I sort of knew I had a problem. I knew I had a problem with pornography a while back I just didn't really admit it to myself and want to admit it to myself or at least I thought that like it was kind of normal uh to be watching porn like every day sometimes multiple times a day I just thought that was kind of a normal thing that that a lot of guys did because you, you know you, you see jokes about it on the internet or whatever and I was just kind of like oh yeah and I'd never heard of anybody being addicted to porn or even that porn addiction was a real thing so I think the first time I watched it, I was 10 and then I stopped for a bit and then started up again when I was like 13. And at first it was only on a laptop. And so therefore it was kind of limited to when I could have access to that laptop. But then when I turned 18, I got a phone, a, a smartphone. And back then smartphones, they were pretty basic. So you, like watching porn on those wasn't really a thing, but then like it got more sophisticated and very quickly that became like the number one way for me to watch porn, which is terrible because it's like always on you, right? And you could just literally be watching it at any time. But I never, I never thought it was negatively impacting my life. There was moments where I think life sort of tried to show me that it was negatively impacting my life uh, in the fact that like I was cheated on pretty much all of my partners and I was like unable to sort of be intimate with them and like, well, intimate and like, you know, monogamous, I just couldn't do that. And if ever like they maybe not offering me something that I wanted sexually, then I would just be like, oh, well, I'll get it from porn. And then that would also lead to like, oh, I'll just, you know, get, go and search for it somewhere else with somebody else. And then I started like paying for OnlyFans and like cam girls sometimes, stuff like that. And again, I was actually trying to tell myself that was even better because I was like, oh, well, I'm paying these people. And like, you know, like that's better than just watching it for free where the women are being exploited. And and he has like anything to justify what I'm doing. So I did that. And then I started dating my most recent partner and, and she found out about the OnlyFans and she was like, I really don't feel comfortable with that. And I was like, okay, fair enough. So I stopped, but I was still watching porn every day. And then I, I got some pretty like terrible news. So one of my past partners accused me of sexual assault and told all my friends and so then I lost a bunch of friends because of that. And I was incredibly anxious and, and depressed and kind of scared. And, and then I was using porn more as a tonic to try to like soothe that anxiety. I still wasn't even realizing that that's how I was using it, but like, but I, I definitely was. And I'd started sexting strangers on the internet. And, and then my partner found out about that. 
and she was obviously really hurt and she said you gotta like I can't I can't be with you if you're gonna be doing that so I stopped watching porn and sexting like kind of immediately and I was like okay I've lost everything I don't want to lose her and so I was able to do it and and it seemed like things were going well between the two of us like she seemed like she was okay but it in the end she came back from living out, out west and and we had like this nice two weeks and then right when she was going back she said i can't do this i need i need, I need a break from us and then i was like oh okay so like we're broken up like this is uh this is happening i guess but she was like well, well maybe we'll stay together or maybe we can get together when I come back and stuff. So then I was like, oh, I'm going to go to SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, because she had pushed me to that in that direction. And it's been really great. I mean, the, the program is is amazing. The group of people that I am have in my meetings are amazing. They're, they're really supportive and uh, they've all been through the same thing, right? They've all been through similar, if not far worse than what I've been through. And to hear the fact that they've been through so much worse and that now they're living lives of happiness and meaning and trust and all that kind of stuff it's just like oh okay well if they can do it then so can I yeah. and so I'm still in the program okay oh my god I have so many questions um <laughs> so do you think that watching porn as a boy at 10 years old is pretty common did you think that that was early in terms of like your friend group and peers that you know I think, I think that like being introduced to it at that age was perhaps a little uncommon because when I was 10 years old, it would have been 2005. Like internet porn was, I mean, it was there, but it was still like relatively young, right? It wasn't as big as it is now. Um, now I would think that it would probably be quite prevalent just because of the fact that there's like, the kids have smartphones now or like their parents will just put a smartphone in front of them or an iPad in front of them to distract them. Kids are gonna go down a rabbit hole of the internet and find some of this stuff, like I, I guarantee it. So. I think it's may not have been prevalent amongst my friend group at the time, but I think it's more prevalent now just anecdotally or just like from what mm -hmm. I can glean. And I mean, watching porn like daily, I also think was pretty normalized and watching it multiple times a day was also, I would assume is pretty normalized. So how would you differentiate between, I don't even know if there is a healthy porno consumption <laughs> versus yeah. unhealthy where would you know that you took it to the next level? That is it your relationship with porn? Like how did that change over time? I think what changed over time was the length of time for, that I was watching porn when I would watch it, right? I would watch it for hours uh, at a time. Like it would be, yeah, I would, I would have certain days if I didn't have anything to do that day, like I would watch porn for like six hours in a day. And then the problem with that is that like, when you get desensitized to it and then you end up going down into darker porn because like the darker porn gives you sort of a new like high sort of when you see it. Like it's because the buildup that you get from that, uh, the buildup and then the, the orgasm that you would get after that is like quite intense and like unrealistic in terms of something that you would be able to do with a partner. So that just becomes like unhealthy, right? I think if you're watching porn, and it's just for, you're like, oh, I'm really, really horny right now. You watch porn and, you know, 10, whatever, 10, 20 minutes, you watch a video, finish. I think that that to me can be healthy for some people or can be not a problem. I think it also depends on like, if you're in a relationship or not, if you're in a relationship it changes things. Like if you're not, if you're single, 
for some people watching porn when they're single can be like totally fine. And then they can just turn it off when they go into a relationship and they're like, I'm not going to watch porn. I don't need to anymore, but it's highly addictive. I mean, it's, I think it's, it fires off the parts of the brain that like, you know, the, the dopamine uh, cycle is, is really real uh, for this sort of thing. And it's something that I've, I've realized as I um, like, as I've come to, to stop doing it, I'm like, Oh wow. Like I was really hooked on that. You know? Yeah. I remember like during the pandemic, like in the lockdown when there's nothing to do, like I just yeah. watched porn forever. And I started to, yeah, also get more interested in darker porn because you hit a peak when you're just like, oh, this is just like my normal bit. How is it linked to the orgasm for you? Is it like the imagination factor of like, this will never happen? Like, where do you think it became addictive for you? Well, apparently with addictions, from what I understand, oftentimes it's actually the buildup that is more pleasurable than the, so like it's the, it's the anticipation. So like with a gambling addict, right? It's the anticipation of potentially winning that is more exciting than actually winning. Like, cause the risk, that risk and that rush that you get from the risk is a bigger rush than even if you get a payout or at least the, the dopamine hit from the payout is like smaller or it doesn't last as long, right? So that's how you get addicted to it is because you get addicted to the, the buildup. And I've noticed now that like, now that I actually have acknowledged that I'm a sex addict, I've come to, you know, I've come to believe that I'm going through the steps and all that. Recently I've, I've, I've struggled and I have relapsed a couple of times. And I realized that in those relapses, it's like, it's, a, it's especially noticeable that like the most enjoyable part about it is the building up is just like the edging, I guess you could call it, right? Versus the actual orgasm itself is kind of like, it's actually very quick and very not that great afterwards because I immediately come to the realization that I'm like, oh, the fog has been lifted and I'm like, oh God, I just, I just relapsed and like, and then the shame comes in and all that. So before I knew that I was an addict, before I acknowledged that I was an addict, that didn't happen as much. Like I, I, the, the, the orgasm was more pleasurable and stuff. And so now it's like, yeah, it's, it's a lot less so, which is good because then it's like, oh, okay, I can remember that and be like, yeah, this isn't what I actually want if I get the urge to do it, right? Like, it's not going to give me what I actually want. Do you think that you were identifying yourself differently? Like when you were unaware of your addiction? Because I mean, this reminds me of my sober journey. You know, I loved who Drunk Amanda was and I didn't want to detach myself from that because I thought that was the cooler Amanda. And I would be having more fun with Drunk Amanda. I assume, you know, I thought that if I was going to go on what I believe is a healthier route of drinking less, then I, I don't have fun Amanda anymore. Did you, did you feel like you were losing a part of yourself that was like the one that enjoys pleasure, the one that like has no boundaries, I can just like do whatever they want? I call that my lower self. I've been doing the energy healing work. And so like, there's the, you know, you have your wound, your initial childhood wound. And you have your inner child uh, and the inner child is the one who feels the wound particularly. So for me, it's like fear of rejection and also like not feeling that I'm lovable. So my inner child feels that wound. And when he feels that wound, the job of the lower self is to protect the inner child from feeling that wound. So my lower self is kind of like the addict, right? And, and I, 
not so much with the porn side of things, but with the sexting, that is one where I think I feel sort of like uh, what you were describing with drunk Amanda versus sober Amanda. For me, it's like sexting Gabe versus not sexting Gabe. Like I felt like if I could start a conversation with someone whom I like potentially knew, but like not in, in, in a sexual way and could turn the conversation sexual. And then she would also go with me in that direction. And we would end up like trading nudes or whatever. Like that to me was like an accomplishment. I felt powerful. I felt sexually powerful. I felt sexually desired. I felt, and that sort of translated to feeling lovable ish, like in, in my addict brain, my lower self was saying to my inner child, see, I found someone who loves you enough to show themselves naked to you. Like, what more do you want? And my inner child was like temporarily satisfied by that, but not in the end, because in the end, what, what he actually wants is, is intimacy and like, and real connection. Yeah. And I think that hits it on the nail because I don't think we have clearly defined what sex addiction is. And for the longest time, I battled admitting that I had sex addiction as well. But when you talk about the risk factor, like, I remember engaging in just like very dangerous casual sex and no protection, no nothing. And, and that was the thrill for me, the excitement of like, I might get pregnant with this rando person that I'm never going to meet again, or I might catch a million diseases, or this person might be horrible to me or whatever, whatever. And then I would enjoy that part as like a cool, fun fact story to share with people. But mm. once I became aware of that, then I was admitting to this being a bad decision. Then you get the rollover of the, of the shame and the guilt of like, oh, I just did this horrible thing to myself and my body. And now yeah. it's not a fun story anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really true. And I've had to like do work to acknowledge that my lower self exists and that that you actually need your lower self, like not the addict. Like I don't need the addict aspect of it. The addict aspect is just the fact that I have no control over my lower self. Once I get control over my lower self, then I can acknowledge that I need him because he actually brings like vitality and life force to, to my being in the sense that like, he's going to go out and get what's his. He's going to go out and chase like with passion and drive and, and energy, like sexual energy is healthy. And I think you need it. And sexual energy can also be used. Like you can embody it in a way that is not like inherently, Oh, like we're going to think like, I'm gonna, I need to have sex. It's just like for a man, it would be like virility, right. Or like you can kind of embody that in a certain way. I need him. And I need to, but, and I also like, I need to acknowledge that what he was doing, what the lower self was doing was to protect the inner child. So like there was good intention there to a certain extent. I just didn't know how to do it properly. Like I just didn't know how to give myself what I actually needed. And yeah, and I, I have to remind myself of that because otherwise it's really easy to get like super wrapped up in shame, um, and there's the difference between shame and guilt, right? Like shame being, I am a horrible person versus like guilt being like, I did this bad thing. So uh, there's the shame, shame is unhealthy. And it just, it just drives you to isolation, which drives you to addiction, which drives you. So you got to like stop the cycle, right? Yeah. It sounds like you gave yourself a lot of compassion eventually on recognizing the good aspects of what your internal dialogue is and what it's trying to give to yourself. So how did you end up switching your mindset from that and not 
diving deeper into that negativity? Uh, energy healing was really the big, the big one for me where my, um, my energy healer had me do some work and look back at my family constellation, sort of seeing like where a lot of this pain might be coming from. There was some pain on my dad's side. Yeah. And, and like, I think that I was holding on to a bit of anger and resentment towards my dad. And so she helped me to let go of that. I, it's still a process, right? Like everything is still a process. It's not like I'm done or I'm, I'm all good. <laughs> Definitely clearly not. I mean, I've, I've relapsed a couple of times lately. So it's, and then for the, for the other side of it with the lower self wound inner child, like that's been super, super helpful. And, and we've done a lot of work with that uh, to kind of uncover like why, why it was that I was doing what I was doing. And when you realize, when you go down there and you realize that, like I had a moment when she has me on lying on a table and she sort of like, I guess, channels energy into me. I don't, she, she kind of puts her hands on my feet and lying there. And then like, um, after having done about an hour of, of therapy. So it kind of helps to like cleanse the body of like the built up tension that's in there. I, I had a moment where I like was lying down, eyes closed. And as my eyes were closed, like I sort of looked over, you know, inside of me, I looked over and I saw the highest version of myself, like beside me. And he came over and he gave me a hug. And he was like, I know what you've been like, I, I get it. I get it and I'm here for you. And that was a big moment, just remembering like, oh yeah, like I'm here for myself and that's it. I'm, I'm responsible for my own happiness in life and for my own journey. So it's like, um, but no matter what, in the end, like I'll always be there for myself. I love that. So, I mean, it sounds like there needs to be both a spiritual aspect to this healing, as well as a self-discipline, you know, community aspect to it. So what was the timeline between doing the energy healing and starting the 12-step SAA program? Like, were they together? Was there one before the other? Like, how did you marry the two? I started SAA in January. Sorry, no, I started energy healing in January of this year. As soon as my partner had found out that I was sexting and stuff, I started the energy healing. And also that was actually at a point where a my former best friend had told me he didn't want to be my friend anymore. So like those two things happened within a week and that was like just devastating. And it was the middle of January. It was dark. I was working at, at a hotel that was like basically shut down. My job was to market and bring people to the hotel when the government was telling people to stay home. So like, I was just feeling ineffectual. I lost my best friend. I was basically losing my partner. I was really low and I needed, I needed some help. And so I went to energy healing and started doing that. And that's, that process began. And then SAA started end of April ish, something like that mid, mid to end of April. And yeah, they talk about that in the program too. Um, any 12 step program is a spiritual transformation. And they kind of stress the fact that like, you can't really do it unless you go through some sort of spiritual transformation, but it doesn't have to be like a, Oh, I'm a born again, Christian. Like that's not, that's not, that's not what they're saying. Um, they use the word God, but they also say or a higher power, the God of our understanding, you know, whatever it means for you. That's why the first step is acknowledging that you are powerless over this because that self-discipline aspect of it, when you're an addict, 
uh, like an alcoholic, when they take that first drink after that, they're done. There's nothing they can do at that point, like a true alcoholic, right? But what they do have control over is that first drink, is to not have that first drink. But once they do, it's like, no, you're completely powerless over it. And it's the same thing with me and porn. It's like, I have the control over like going to watch it, going to start watching it. But once I start watching it, it's like, it's not really going to stop. It's going to be really hard for me to stop uh, unless, you know, unless I have to go to work or unless I have to do something, right? Like it's... So the spiritual transformation continues through SAA and it's, um, yeah, a lot of like working, trying to figure out what my higher power is, trying to surrender myself and like these, these sort of desires and all, all of it up to a higher power and to come to a place of humility to know that like, I don't know everything. And that's why I need a higher power to just kind of stand with me and, and help guide me through. Right. Yeah, hundred percent. And I agree. I think there definitely needs to be something that is beyond yourself so that you're not feeling all of the shame that it's all about you and you're a terrible person and you can't, can't figure this out on your own. And, and the funniest thing is like, we're not ever supposed to do anything on our own, but yeah, I think a lot of it also has to do in changing your relationship because my relationship to sex was really a form of attachment to prove that I still existed in this relationship. And it would be a tool that I would use to solidify our relationship if I ever felt insecure. And mm-hmm. I would either use giving sex or removing sex, you know, as a power play in, in the relationship. And then I had to really reassess my relationship to sex overall. And, this, and that was kind of my main decision to not have sex anymore. And at first it was restrictive in a sense of like an alcoholic, just like, oh, I'm just never going to go to a bar again, I guess, and never have fun and never socialize. And then I started to think the same way. I'm like, I guess I can never have a relationship. I guess I can never have romance. I guess I can never have love because all of those things are contingent to sex until I realized like, well, you can have a relationship and love and romance without sex. So, you know, maybe it's about redefining what that looks like. So do you imagine that you'll still be able to enjoy all of those thrills, but just through healthier habits now, rather than needing porn or like managing that, or maybe it's something that you can do with your partner differently. Do you, do you foresee that as a potential future or is it kind of like a cutthroat? This is out of my life kind of thing. Uh, well, for me, porn is like, for now it's a bottom line behavior. So it is like something I completely want to cut out. Same thing with, uh, with sexting of all kinds, actually at first, at first it was just sexting with people outside of my relationship, but now it's like, even I think within a relationship, like right now, I mean, it's weird to, I guess, call her my partner. Like we're not technically, we're, we're taking things real slow right now. Like she moved back here full time. Um, trying to rebuild the trust, you know, like just, just starting from just building it up slowly. Right. So, but I would not go back to a place where we would be sexting, I think, um, because I find that like, it's, it's really easy for me to objectify the other person in that sense. Like I think my mind just kind of does it and there's no, like, there's no real intimacy building through sexting. I think the challenging part was that we were like living, you know, 3000 kilometers away. So it's like, that was one of the only ways that we could have sex in our relationship. And so we sexted a lot. I was also sexting other people and that, which is like why it was a problem. 
So I think all that to say, I'm cutting out sexting, I'm cutting out porn for sex itself. Um, yeah, I think I can do it healthily. Um, I think that I can, you know, have, yeah, have be present when I'm having sex with my partner and like be loving and, and intimate and like see and see it as an intimacy building tool, but also knowing that I don't need it. I don't need to have it every time I see her or we can just go for a walk and hang out. And that, that that's great. That's intimacy building as well. Just a little bit of romance, a little bit of hand holding, and yeah. So I think it's possible to have it healthily. And that's, that's my goal. My goal is to get to that place where it's, uh, it's all healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's mainly just to recognize that it doesn't have to be necessary for your relationship to be secure anymore. Mm-hmm. Cause now you're saying like, you don't have to have sex every day. Whereas before yeah. that was something that you aspired to because mm-hmm. that equals a hot relationship, right. That you're yeah. doing it all the yeah. time. And I think yeah. that's like, where do you think that came from, you know, cause it's not porn and everything. It's kind of like the media portraying that like, Oh, a good relationship is when you have sex nonstop, but mm. obviously like there's more to a relationship than just being in bed all day. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, for me, physical touch is my love language, uh, my main love language. So I think that I, my fear of rejection combined with physical touch being my main love language kind of created this scenario where it's like um, for me to prove to myself that this person actually loves me or actually likes me, I needed to like have sex with them or be sexual with them in some sort of way. And the weird thing about porn is that there's no physical touch aspect to it because you're just watching porn. Um, But it was, I could imagine myself uh, being in that scenario, I guess. That's why I think that was why I was uh, cheated a lot was because if I had somebody who was interested in me at a party and would say the partner, my partner at the time wasn't around, this person was interested in me, well, my lower self, right? Like the fear of rejection, didn't want to be rejected. Lower self was like, okay, well, we're going to be as charming as possible and as funny as possible to get this person to sleep with us for the night. That, that'll fulfill that need. That'll, fulfill, that'll prove, at least for tonight, that I am lovable and that I didn't get rejected. That's why I was doing that. And I was sleeping around quite a bit. But now that hasn't been an issue, actually. The, the infidelity, the physical infidelity aspect hasn't been an issue. I think parts of the pandemic actually really helped with that. It was, it was not easy to see other people go out to bars and all that kind of stuff. So that definitely helped. But even now, like going to a bar, I wouldn't even feel that desire to do that. Yeah. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I think after speaking to a lot of men on that infidelity thing, it's more just that validation to be like, yeah, I still got it. Yeah, I can have sex with this girl. Mm-hmm. And then decide mm-hmm. afterwards if you're going to. And at first I thought, wow, these men talk about women in such a gross way to say like, oh yeah, I could have had sex with her, but I decided not to. And then apparently you're such a gentleman that you decided not to. But of course you could have because women are just tools for you. Yeah, you know, And that was my perspective on it but now I'm realizing the deeper rooted issue of that validation of being like oh I'm insecure about my current relationship or I'm insecure about relationships in general and rejection and fear itself and that's Mm -hmm. why I'm collecting all of these potential fuckable people you know Mm -hmm. just to make myself feel more comfortable in my own discomfort Mm -hmm. so yeah you know what I mean yeah 
biologically kind of like women are the gatekeepers of sex in general right like it's usually the men that are going the ones chasing and the women are the one who are accepting or not right they're like accepting it or they're just saying like oh no i don't want to be with you i think a lot of men feel like women have a lot of power in in these interactions right they have the power to choose their partners whereas men have to constantly go out and try to prove themselves to be worthy of you know having sex with 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 women so I think that's why you get men that are like really career focused because they're like, oh, okay, if, I, if I'm career focused and I do really well in my career, then I'm going to have more women that are going to be into me, right? Uh, I'll be able to, my dating will grow. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's a challenge for men because, you know, women get complimented a lot. They get, there, there's a lot of attention put on, on women, the way they look, all this kind of stuff, which has negative, which has negative aspects to it for sure. But conversely, men, like there's a, there's a kind of a running joke, which is like, oh, did you get your yearly compliment? Like guys will get compliments. Like if you, if you compliment a guy on something, like on what he's wearing, he will remember that compliment for the rest of his life. Like a lot of men are starved for compliments and like just these sorts of validation of that kind, right? So then we seek it out in other ways and we seek it out through, a lot of us will end up seeking it out through sex. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because- I also think that there's compliments being given all the time to men, but it's just maybe not the compliment that they can hear, mm-hmm. you know, cause you're not going to compliment often. You're not going to compliment about someone's style or what they're wearing in the same way that like, you're going to talk about a woman's hair like five times a day. Right. So yeah. I think with less options to use as compliments, that seem fair to men, you know, like, is it an accomplishment of like your fatherhood? Is it accomplishment of like, you did a good job mowing the lawn? Like, mm-hmm. no, cause those are just duties. So you would only get in trouble for not doing the, the duty well, but you'll never get complimented for just doing it. So I think of it kind of like salt, you know, no one's going to say, oh, that was a perfectly salted meal. It's either too salty or not salty <laughs> enough. Right. So I think, like yeah, no, no man is ever going to receive that because it's always if you're not doing the role. So I think it's more yeah. the, the question of what is your role even supposed to be and why is that standard so high? Because all it is is like, did you hit it or did you not? And that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you hit it, they're like, okay, well, like that was just expected of you. And so therefore, like, why are we going to compliment you on it? Where it's like, or why are we going to say like, hey, we appreciate it and stuff like that. So yeah, I've, I've definitely felt that. And I think that like, I think I got jealous. I used to get, I would get jealous of the fact that like women would, I would perceive that women were getting a lot of like positive attention um, from men. And I know that women end up, I know that many women ended up not liking it very much because they're like, oh, it feels like it's too much or if you can't just walk down the street and like be unnoticed or whatever, right? Like, and I'm like, yeah, but I'm, that's my life. Like I walk down the street and I'm unnoticed all the time. And let me tell you, it gets boring pretty quick. Yeah, I think that like that empathy there, like I'm trying to see the woman's side of it. And I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast. I mean, that women are trying to see the guy's side of it and just we're people too. We've got, we're fallible and we've got these like feelings that we need compliments every once in a while. We need the, you know, validation every once in a while. So we just got to do it in healthy ways. I mean, you know, that's on us, but yeah. Yeah, and I think you can get the validation that you need if it's verbalized. I think what happens is it's not communicated about the validation that you need. So then you seek it 
in other people. And I think the worst part about it is when men go and seek it through multiple women, when Mm -hmm. that actually just doesn't satisfy anybody. And then you keep seeking more and more and more. And then you end up getting that validation through the jealousy of the partner you're with, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's the thrill that, oh, this woman that I value so much and I see her at such a high pedestal getting all this attention. And then now I'm getting attention that's bothering her, which means I'm above her now, which means I have control of the situation. And now I'm in the power play of the relationship all over again. Hmm. That may be true. I think for me, it was slightly different where like I would go out and, and sleep with other people more from like an addictive. I just need to like feel the validation. I always hit it. Like I always did my absolute best to hide it from my partners. Sometimes they found out. And sometimes I did actually, there were a couple instances where I did share it. And I think that was where those were moments where like the shame came out. Like I remember I had one time where I, I, I slept with my roommate and my partner was out. Like she just was literally gone to Toronto to go see a concert with her friends. And then uh, I slept with my roommate that night. And she, as she got back the following day, like she got into the apartment and I literally like, I had to like walk around the block like by myself. My inner monologue was just terrible stuff about myself. Like, oh, you monster. Like, oh, you're disgusting. Like, how could you do that? Blah, 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 blah. Like I was saying all those things to myself, right? Just so much shame. And then I, and then I ended up telling her and obviously she was devastated. Um, and it's always weird in those scenarios, you know, like I, I was thinking to myself, like, I guess it was the right thing to do to tell her, but then also like telling her just kind of devastated her. And then I went to therapy after that for the first time trying to sort all this out, but then the relationship was never the same. And we kind of just stayed, we stayed together, but trust was trust could never be rebuilt. And then we ended up breaking up like about a year later and all that. Yeah. So all that to say, it was just, I felt terrible. Like it wasn't, I, I don't think I got off like by her being jealous. Like that was not at all like a thing that crossed my mind for me. It was just like truly, truly an in the moment thing with my roommate that it was just like, I can't say no to her because if I say no to her, then she's going to get angry and she's, she's going to get angry at me. And even though I have like no relationship to this person, even though like, I don't really like, why do I care what she thinks about me? Right. Like, but I did in that moment. Right. So. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. I think that's another perspective and that's kind of maybe the reason why people are hiding it. Like it's more the shame behind that finding it in other people rather than understanding where the the real wound is inside you I'd like to know more about your current relationship because it sounds like there's a lot of uncertainty there which the old you wouldn't be able to handle because of your fear of rejection so it looks like rejection is at any point in time with this uncertainty of you not even really being a secure relationship so is it kind of open-ended what's going on yeah um yeah we've been going back and forth a little bit um we've been seeing each other going on dates i think i'm struggling because she has communication issues she has trauma in her life that has caused her to uh, be really passive in relationships and to not actually share how she's feeling until it boils up boils up boils up and then she just kind of is like oh yeah we're breaking up and I'm like whoa 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 what where did this come from like things were really good 
and that's exactly what happened in the in the winter time like you know after she discovered the the sexting then like we were apart but we were things were going well we were chatting we were, we were talking and things felt to me like everything was normal right like she never mentioned that she was really upset about it and I was just we were kind of moving forward and I was telling her hey I'm not watching porn anymore things are going good and then all of a sudden just out of nowhere hey like no this isn't and I'm like whoa what what the heck like whoa you know so that's kind of the that's that's the struggle for me and then when we took a two-month break in the summertime like a full-on communication break like we're just we were broken up for two months I was taking that time to prepare myself to then get back into a relationship that was more committed. And I thought she was as well. And I, and I guess I believe that she was, but her journey is perhaps taking her longer to get to that place because now that she's back, she's still not ready to be in a like full, I guess, committed relationship right now. So it's, un, it's unclear right now. And yeah, the old me would have been freaking out. And I am still kind of, I have moments of freaking out, but one of the meditations that I remembered from, the, I have a daily meditation book for SAA. And it was just like, the addict is the one who tries to direct the play of life and tries to make sure that every actor does exactly, and says this thing and then says that thing and moves to this place and moves to that place. And, and if it doesn't work out in their way, the addict will either become a lot more nice and try to convince people by being super, super nice, or they'll be very belligerent. But either way, it's like, it's kind of like a God complex, right? Where you, you just think to yourself like, oh, the world should be going exactly the way that I want to at all times. And if it doesn't, then it justifies me acting out because you, you get resentful, right? And I'm like, okay, I have to remind myself. I'm like, no, that it's not going exactly the way that I want it to go right now, but that's okay. I have, I, I have to trust in that I, like, I have my higher power and that I have friends and family that I can fall back on. And maybe it will work out between the two of us. Maybe it won't, but I got to trust that whatever does happen, it'll be the right thing. Yeah, I love that. And I think that you're looking at trust differently now too, it seems like, and just trusting that whatever is meant to be is meant to be and it will happen. Can you share a little bit about, I know you mentioned in our call that you were no matter what, grateful for her even being in your life because she kind of brought you onto this journey. So what was the program that she went on? Because like she is a partner of someone that's a sex addict. Like what yeah, was that? it's called SA. Okay. Um, they have it for like uh, alcoholics as well. They're partners of alcoholics. And it's weird. She did that like right after she found out about the sex thing, she joined SA before I had even gone to SAA so like I hadn't even acknowledged that I was a sex addict and she was going to this program for the partners of sex addicts and I think she realized she's like well why am I going to this if he's not even going to SAA so she stopped going to that and she hasn't really gone back uh as at, at this point in time which is a bit of a point of frustration for me a little bit and yeah in the sense that I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, if we want to, like, if we're trying to make this work and be together, then like, it would kind of like, I'm committed to going to SAA to make myself better. And like, are you committed to going to SAA, which would probably help you. And so, but she's not, she's not at that point yet. I mean, she's still getting, you know, she started a new job. 
she's moving out of her parents house now so it's like there's a lot of stuff going on for her and I'm like okay fair enough you know I'm like oh whatever it's uh like eventually I'll need her to get to a place where she chooses to be with me like actively choosing to be with me not like oh I'm doing it somewhat reluctantly it's like no 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 like I, I need her to choose it 100 because I know that I deserve that I, I deserve to be with someone who is choosing to be with me and like choosing to be with me knowing that I'm a sex addict and knowing that I've done some things in the past that are not great and uh and maybe it's not her like maybe maybe it won't be her but like yeah like you said I mean either way I'll be grateful because she came into my life and I would not have gone to SAA by myself I don't think I would have done that but at first I did it for her and again they always say like oh you have to do it for yourself I'm like true that's true but I had to start by doing it for her. And now, see, now, now, the, now the challenge is I'm transitioning to like doing it for myself. Because even over the summertime when we were on that break, it was like a break, but knowing that we, for me, knowing that we were going to go get back together. So I was still doing it for her to a certain extent. Whereas now I'm like, okay, if I'm doing this, I have to be doing it for myself. And I think that's why I've like relapsed recently a couple of times. And it's, is because I was, I'm still doing it for her, but I'm like, no, it can't be for her. It has to be for me. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you think of even the program of partners for sex addicts, that's for them because they were the one experiencing that trauma. Right. So even though she went there on her own accord, that was for her because she's clearly aware of her own trauma and wants to deal with it. Right. So Mm-hmm. for her to then decide, okay, and I don't want to anymore. Again, that's all, all her decisions. So I think there sounds like a lot of attachment with you and this program and your relationship. And now you're trying to detach that and recognize that the program is now just for you and your relationship with her is completely separate and its own situation to deal with. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you along on this, uh, the 12 step journey? I'm about to finish step three and step three is became willing to turn our will and our life over to a higher power. Yeah, it's, uh, I've got this amazing book called the gentle path through the 12 steps. It's for anybody going through any 12 step program. And it basically had, it's a workbook. So you're like actually you know, filling stuff in. It's not a lot of actually reading. It's mostly just questions and then spaces for you to answer to help you through those 12 steps. It's a really, really good book. And it's the, uh, yeah, the, step four is the one where I make a personal inventory of all of the things that I've done in my life, uh, all, the, all the bad things I've done in my life or the, all, of the, all, the, all of the resentments that I hold. And I kind of talk, you know, who am I resentful towards? why what emotion is that triggering in me and like what and what's my part like what's my part in that resentment so that's going to be a tough one that's going to be a a real deep dive into into some shame into some some guilt and then at the end sharing that whole list with my sponsor to then give it up to a higher power and then eventually then once that's done make a list of all of the people who I've harmed and get ready to make amends to them. And then step nine is making amends to those people, unless doing so would make it worse. So there are certain people where it's like, yeah, you probably don't want to 
make amends. You don't even want to like contact them because contacting them would, would be bad for both you and them, depending on the scenario. And then after that, it's step 10 and 11 is really uh, 10, 11, and 12 is sort of a repeating of the process of just realizing that like, this is a spiritual practice that's going to be with you for your whole life. And so, you know, whenever you're wrong, you promptly admit it, make amends for it. And then step 12 is bringing this spiritual program to others. So it means taking on sponsorship, probably taking or um, just continuing on in the, in the program, you know, like just making yourself more part of the community in a certain way. So to, to give back, because that's going to give you some meaning in life. Mm. it sounds like you're just about to jump into the deep end yeah with that kind of first um first third first quarter first quarter yeah Yeah. well I I did the first quarter yeah I'm just about done uh, about 25 percent done so yeah 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 and it takes time I mean this took it took me five months to do the first three steps but the interesting thing is that in the book the first three steps are actually the like they're almost half the book um because there's a lot of like reflection at that point, you know, in step three, they had us do an exercise. Imagine what your life would be like if you were to die in one year from now, like the doctor tells you, you have one year to live. What would you change? What would you, what's important? Like, what do you need to say? And who do you need to say it to? All these things. It was a really emotional exercise. Like I was crying as I was writing it, just thinking about the people that I like, Maybe I didn't say I love you too enough, or maybe I didn't actually fully share with them how important they are in my life and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, okay. So I got to do that more, you know, like it's not just because I have one year left to live that that that's the case. Right. Yeah. I think that's really interesting as an exercise to do, you know, to recognize what would you do if death was on the horizon versus like, oh, what would you spend your whole life doing? And then you can Mm -hmm endure that duration of time for however you want to imagine it versus like oh no there's a finality here like I gotta actually say what I need to say before Mm. it's too late yeah yeah for sure it's all a journey and it's not it's not easy you know you feel untethered at points because you're like I've lost my old self I, I don't know who I am anymore and that's that's scary like there's also a really great book called Iron John uh, a book about men and the archetypal journey of a man through his life and it's told through this like 2000 year old fairy tale and the author like well so you know the book is basically you read a certain passage from the fairy tale and then the author will go into like all of the rich symbolism the deep meaning behind that and sort of describe how how men will go through that at some point in their life and I know that like I've kind of placed myself within this fairy tale as to like where I'm at in life. And it's this period where like eventually after adolescence, you're you're you have this sort of um, infantile grandiosity where you believe that you are godlike and that you're sort of infallible. And that that energy is like it can take you pretty far. Like I ran a business on that energy. I was really confident, outgoing, I had a lot of friends. And but then life either gives you an opportunity. Because you're, what, what's happening is that I'm basically flying away. I'm trying to fly away from like my inner wound. I'm just like trying to get away from it. I'm trying to ascend away from it. And life says, eventually we'll say, no, you got to come down and you got to deal with this. And it's, at first it does it gently. But then after a while, it's like, no, you have something called catabasis, which is like the fall. Um, and you basically just something, something in life just hits you so hard that you fall. And that was basically when I lost my best friend. 
And when my partner found out about the sex thing, like that was the real, that was a catabasis for me, I think. Also being accused of sexual assault was a starting of that. And just like slammed me down. You're, you're kind of in the dark parts of your soul. And the only way out of there is to walk through the doorway that is your wound. Like you have to walk through it. And, and then after that point, you're, you're going through this period of ashes. Your childlike ego has burned really bright for a long time, burned hot. But then at the end of that fire, there's, an a, there's ashes. And it, it can last up to like two years sometimes, this period where you're like, you just feel sort of, you don't have a ton of passion, maybe necessarily, you don't have the, the same drive that you used to, but it's a really a time of being rather than doing. And I've always had this feeling I need to do stuff in order to be loved, in order to be worthy of like having friends and all this kind of, I need to be doing things. But now it's like, no, I'm trying to, I'm in a state of being. Um, and it's a challenge and you feel low sometimes and you feel like you feel unworthy, but I know that it's better than being blindly in my addiction like I was before. Yeah. Can I ask why your best friend decided to no longer be friends with you? What I learned about relationships in these interviews is we put a high importance on romance and sex as like the highest tier of relationships. And if you don't get those types of validation in that relationship in a romantic sense, then you're going to be quick to cut it off and find a new one. And yet with friendships, there is no end to that. Like usually you kind of endure a lot more with a close friend. So I think it would take a lot more for someone to leave that connection. So I'm just curious yeah. as to what happened there. He made a decision, I think, because the person who accused me, my ex was, is friends with him and part of that friend group. And I think in today's climate, it is infinitely easier to side with the woman in something like this and to just cut, cut the guy off than it would be to have a nuanced conversation and to potentially, you know, move to a place of listening and understanding and redemption potentially. Like I, yeah, it, it was, um, we had a couple of conversations after he found out about, uh, or after like after my ex had shared it with a, with a group of people and, um, and he seemed like he was, I'd shared it with him, my side of it. And, um, and then we didn't talk that much, but then I think like at one point in January, we saw, we saw each other like on a zoom call for, uh, we were playing like this game among us. It's this like, I don't know if you remember that. And we were playing this like amongst friends and it was all on zoom. It was nice. And then I said, Hey man, it was really nice seeing you the other day on zoom. Like, uh, we should try to, you know, have a call soon. And he was like, Hey, listen, like, yeah, I don't, I just don't, uh, want to be friends with you anymore. And I was like, okay, like, and I, I was, I was angry. Like I was really angry because had the shoe been on the other foot, like had hit, had this happened to him, like we've been friends for eight years and I called, I considered him to be like pretty much right up there, like my closest friend. And the fact that he like cut me off completely like that, after I had already told him, I was like, I had already started a journey and it was already like better than I was when this incident happened between me and my ex. 
I was already like on a journey to be a better man. I hadn't gone to SA yet. I hadn't gone to energy healing yet, but I was still like better than I was. And so, and I was like, dude, I'm, I'm on this, like I'm on this path and I'm like, I'm working to, to be better. And it just wasn't enough for him, I guess, you know? So, and he, I, I look back on, I'm like, look, he made the decision that he felt was best for him in that moment. And, and I can't fault him for that. Like, I think that, I guess the decision that I would have made that would have been best for me, I think I would have wanted to, you know, keep in contact with him and probably try to support him through it. But if he felt like he wasn't able to do that, then, okay. Like I can't, uh, I can't change that fact. So it is what it is. Wow. Listening to that. I've always wished selfishly that that would happen to somebody, you know, that someone would receive a great enough consequence to his actions. Because when I experience other women's stories about sexual assault, normally it's a bunch of men strategizing on how to deal with the situation. And then they apologize and hopefully that is enough, you know? And then it usually is enough, unfortunately. And there's not enough of a consequence, you know? They kind of just keep going and doing it over and over again. So I've always just wondered like, oh, are there going to be some men out there that are going to be like, no, we're going to isolate this guy for, for his actions. And that's it, you know, um, regardless of whether or not he's going to try and change his ways. Like there's, there's a very severe consequence and I never imagined it to be like, oh yeah, we're going to cut you off from friendship. You know, I thought it would be like you, I don't know, but I knew it had to be something with shame or something about your reputation. Um, but you're, you're also giving me some new light in terms of like, that's not a compassionate way to think about consequence, you know, because I agree that there should be a consequence hundred percent, but I don't think it needs to be so cutthroat in that sense that it, it challenges your own trust of who you are, you know, who your friendships are and ultimately hurts you even more to the point that it doesn't match the consequence anymore. So I'm curious what your thought would be like, if the same thing happened, you know, it, it sounds like you would be more compassionate to your friend, but what would be a consequence that you would give to him? To me, it's not my job to like, it's not my job to give him the consequence. I think that the concept, it depends on the scenario, right? Like it does the, does the friend feel contrition? Is the friend actually feel bad, like terrible about what's happened? Is the friend going and trying to make themselves better? right? Like that's the big thing for me. And I, and I, and I had been, um, and I, yeah, like I, I had been, and what had happened between me and my ex happened once happened when I was blackout drunk. So I don't recall, I don't even recall doing what I did. And like, and I, and I acknowledged to her the pain that it caused that my actions had hurt her. And that I was deeply sorry for that. Like I, and so I don't think that it's like either, what is it? The, uh, there's an African proverb that's like, the village must raise the child with warmth or the child will burn the village down to feel, to me, doesn't do anything. I think there, I think you can maintain a friendship. So not enable if do other, to do like bad things again, right? Like it's, I have other friends that I've told about this scenario that, you know, I have friends who are like super staunch feminists, like guys that are super like feminists that are like, and I've told them about this and they're like, okay, what are you doing about it? 
And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to SAA now. I'm going, to, I'm going to energy healing and I'm trying to make myself a better man every day. And they're like, okay, cool. That's what matters, you know? Like, and like, did you own up to it? I was like, well, yeah, I apologize. And they're like, okay, then that's, then that's, that's all I would need personally, right? Um, I think in that scenario is like, you know, cutting someone off like that. I think we, as a society, we need to have a, a way in which men who have done things, well, men, people that have, who have done things that are wrong and hurtful have a way to make their way back into society as they apologize and as they work on themselves and all this kind of stuff because i feel like some of the narrative is like you don't you've, you've done this it's irredeemable right and maybe there are certain things that are irredeemable but even in the court of law like murder if you murder someone you're going to go to jail for 25 years and then they've deemed that like after that it's like you've done your time and you can go back into society but society is still like not ready for it. Right. So it's like, because if there is no way for redemption, then what's the point of trying to make yourself a better person afterwards, mm -hmm. if yeah. there is no way to redeem yourself. Right. And I think that's the scary part. Right. So it's like, yeah. you're right. Like rather than just only focusing on the consequences, we also have to focus on like, well, then what is even redemption and what are we going to work for? Because if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, who cares? You know? Yeah. Also like there's a bit of a, breach like there were people that she told this to that had no business knowing this something that happened between the two of us you know like I, I would like to get to a place where we can deal with things as a, as a you know between the two people who have the conflict ideally right like um where you can try to have some of that and then if it doesn't, like you try it once, and if it doesn't work, okay, fine. Then you can go to other ways of doing it, right? Like you can go to other other forms, uh, like making it public or, or whatever, like if that's what you feel like you have to do after that. But what really upset me about this was that her and I had, had a conversation where she told me, she reminded me of what happened. I acknowledged it and I apologized for it. And it appeared at the end of that conversation that that was enough, I guess, for her, or that like, it didn't seem like she wanted to extract more from me. But then one night at two in the morning, she sends a group text to 17 people saying this happened and I don't ever want to see him at an event that I'm at. And 10 of those people, I didn't even know, like 10 of those people don't even know who I am. She's just, just putting this out there. Right. And I'm like, that's irresponsible. That's vindictive. I think probably, but either way, I'm like, it just, it, it, it was, it was frustrating because I thought, I thought that we had kind of been able to deal with it a little bit. Right. I thought that we had at least been gotten to a place where like, and maybe we could have had some, some more conversations about it. Uh, Cause I totally would have been open to that. You know, like I'm not someone who's going to just try to deny how she's feeling about it or just like yell her down like at all, you know, like I just, yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. There definitely needs to be more communication with that. And I think unfortunately with the way media has positioned that kind of movement, I think more and more women are using that as a, as a way to take advantage for sure. And that kind of ruins the whole situation of, of redemption, like you're saying. So they're extracting they're I mean, some of them are extracting revenge in some form and because they've been hurt and they're like, well, I'd like to hurt this person in return. And again, that's a human, that's a human feeling, right? Like that's normal. I think we, we, you know, to feel that 
is not wrong. You know, to feel like you want to get revenge, that's totally normal. To act on it, it's not great, right? Like in general, revenge is not something that we want to condone in general because revenge breeds revenge, breeds revenge, breeds revenge. And so like the pain that I've caused myself through the shame and the guilt and the acting out and all this kind of stuff has been like the consequence that's been a consequence of my actions in the past, right? Like that, that has been a consequence of, and so it's not like reparations to her necessarily, or it's not like she doesn't necessarily know that because I haven't spoken to her since, but like, that's part of the reason why I would not cut off a friend who had done something like this, because oftentimes, you know, men can be their own biggest critics about these things. And a lot of them feel like tremendous guilt and shame if they were to ever do something like this and also there's like zero intention to harm right there's absolutely zero intention to harm blackout drunk don't remember what happened and so like what are you doing in that scenario it's like it's tough it's really tough it's not it's not it's not an easy solution it's messy life is life is messy right yeah but um i want to wrap up with a couple of questions this is a weird question do you think that these scenarios that have happened to you with, you know, a friend walking out on you from the allegations and sexual assault, accusations on that, you know, your partner needing to go to partners for sex addicts, that this helps you build more compassion for this space so that you can then help others. Like, is that, you think that's a, a calling for you? Yeah. It makes me want to help. Like I'm, this is a part of me that's really scared about, you know, doing this podcast. I mean, just because it's going to be out on the internet now. And I mean, like, I don't know how many listeners you have or followers, but it's just one of those things where I'm scared that it could get back to me. But at the same time, I'm also like, we have to talk about these things and what's, what's human is mentionable and what's mentionable is manageable. So you can only manage these things if we actually talk about them and are willing to have compassionate dialogue about it. You know, a lot of these, uh, a lot, a lot of men with, with, with sex addiction have been through, you know, childhood sexual trauma, uh, childhood trauma of their own. Right. So there's like a hurt people, hurt people thing, which doesn't make it okay. It just means that like, I think looking at these men with some compassion and being like, Oh man, like, you've been through it, eh? Like, okay. And you know, that that's what the space is in the 12 step program. It's just, it's just a, a space to listen where a, a member can share. They can talk for 10 minutes about whatever they want and nobody responds to it. They just say, Hey, thanks for sharing. That's a great space. You know? So I like maybe I'm looking at maybe opening up a, an SAA chapter where I live potentially, you know, there might not be that many people that join, but it doesn't matter. You, all you need is two people for a meeting. Right. So stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also just taking a different lens to how we look at the punishment that we might perceive as being put onto us as, I mean, a gift in a way, because now mm -hmm. you have such a broader perspective of what compassion even is now than, yeah. than a lot of your counterparts. So It's true. Like I've kind of had to reframe how I look at the whole thing and maybe if I hadn't lost my friend, right? Like maybe if he hadn't said he doesn't want to be friends with me anymore. I may not have gone to energy healing. I don't know. But all I know is that I lost him as a friend 
And I did go to SA and I did go to energy healing and I'm on this path now. And I'm grateful for the fact that I am on this path at this age now, you know, rather than waiting another five, 10 years, causing more damage, more broken relationships. I'm just so grateful that I'm currently on this path uh, now. And a lot of the men in the group say that too. You know, I'm, I'm one of the youngest ones in the group. They're like, good for you for, for getting there when you did, you know, because uh, it's, it's infinitely better than whatever you start is just good. It's just good to start, right? Like it's better mm-hmm. than never going. I want to encourage men to be okay with going to something like this if they feel like they might need it. Mm-hmm. What is the number one challenge that you think is in why a lot of men aren't able to open up with each other? about more vulnerable topics? A lot of men feel like they're judged and worthy of love based on what they provide financially or their skills and abilities around the household to build things or whatever, just like, whereas women feel like they're judged based on their looks and like what they can provide that way. When a man feels like he's, you know, depressed or unable to provide, so even if it's provide emotionally, then there's a lot of shame there and you don't want to admit it around other men because I mean, I think a lot of men still see other men as competition too, right? Like even in, within friendships, there's a lot of, there's a competitiveness there that you want to, you want to show off that you're doing, you're doing well in life and that you're doing, you're doing well for yourself. You've picked yourself up. And, and so being vulnerable with friends is, um, is definitely a challenge because I think men bond differently than women too. Uh, women tend to bond more through uh, communication, um, like versus men tend to bond through testosterone, and like, and therefore they bond by doing things together, like phys- physically, uh, you know, either whether it's building something or doing sports or whatever. So, some of the best moments I've had with my dad, where these conversations can start to happen, is when we're actually building something together, like we're doing some carpentry, and then in between cutting the piece of wood, you know, I'm like oh man, listen, I've been feeling a little, been feeling a little down lately, you know? And then we just kind of keep working, but we're talking about what we're doing, right? That can be a, a useful space for men to do that. They can build the, make the bonds closer. Mm. That leads me into my next question. What would you want to see normalized in men's mental health? Rest, uh, that men need to rest. And sometimes you just got to take a nap in the middle of the day. You know, uh, <laughs> like listen to your body. Also, I'd like to normalize journaling. Like I started journaling. And I think that really helped me a lot to get my thoughts bumbling around in my head and to get them out on paper. It forces my mind to slow down to then be able to actually write out what I'm feeling. That's a really useful tool. And um, yeah, and I'd love to see normalized just men being able to share with other men what their struggles are. And then conversely, to have the other men listen and not necessarily provide a solution because that's men are solution based in general. So like, I think, you know, girlfriends are like, oh, I, I wanted to complain about work today, but then he just offered me these solutions. And it's like, well, no, sometimes, yeah, sometimes women just, sometimes people just want to vent and they just need to like let it out without having a, oh, well, here's what you should do, you know? So I think there's, there's that aspect too, that men can just listen and, and be there for each other. Be like, mm-hmm. I hear you, man, you know? Yeah. What was a gentle reminder that jumped out at you from today's conversation? Life works in mysterious ways and that 
we're all on a journey. We're all in the, like where we're supposed to be right now. I think, you know, with yourself, you sharing about your journey and like how you're, you are, you're, you're now on this, on this journey of celibacy for now. Right. And it's, uh, and you feel like you're right where you need to be. And I think that that's a lot of reminds me to like, yeah, it, it's a struggle, but to just sort of accept it. Radical acceptance, I think is a, is a good one. So I'm just reminded about that. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, nothing's permanent, right? This yeah. is just where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. My last question to you is, are there any topics that jumped out at you from today's conversation that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on in another episode on the show? Oh, just the mental health one. For sure, talking about other struggles with with mental health, depression, anxiety, and like how men go about dealing with it, right? And yeah, uh, dealing with a devast- devastating news, let's say, and like how do, how do they handle that? So that'd be an interesting conversation. Okay, cool. So what would you do if you heard of some unflattering information about your friend's sexual antics? Is it game over, or are there ways to help him do better? I think this is a very important conversation, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. Make sure to subscribe, and if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram, and I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100th Masked Men.